This podcast is brought to you by Erickson Immigration Group. Welcome to Immigration Nerds. As many of you know, the H-1B lottery application window just wrapped up, so we find it necessary to walk applicants through the post-selection process, what to expect, how to prepare, and be given the information needed to be successful after receiving a determination. To help us understand the ins and outs, we have joining us Erickson Immigration Group's senior attorney, Lauren Clark. Pleasure to have you on. Thank you, Ian. It's definitely my pleasure. Thank you. So, I mean, I I assume much of the hard work is completed by now, but by which date should an applicant know whether or not they're selected uh, or does determinations work on a rolling basis? Yeah, so USAS announced the completion of, I guess, the random selection process for what we will deem round one as of yesterday, March 29th. So those individuals who were successfully selected should have or will receive notification from either their employer or their immigration counsel that they have been successfully selected or their application still remains as submitted. And the reason why we're kind of dubbing that as round one is if we look at previous years, particularly last year, UCIS did multiple rounds of selection over the course of the financial year or over the course of the full year. Um, So in this particular instance, round one selections, they have taken place, but there is that potential that this year, again, we will see that UCIS will continue to do multiple rounds of selections. And if we learned from last year, that likely can take place in June and then again in November of this year. Um, This is supported by the fact that with registration, there are different types of statuses that are attached. So a registration can be submitted, it can be selected, it can be rejected or it can be no decision issued. At present, everyone that has been registered was deemed submitted. If they were selected in this round one, their status has now changed to being selected and everyone that still was registered but not selected that stays as submitted. So ultimately what that leads us to conclude is that 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 submission is still viable for selection throughout the course of this year and indicates that UCS is going to do those multiple rounds of selections on a rolling basis as we continue through petitions being filed or not being filed, approvals and denials, so that ultimately they can get to that total of 85,000 H-1B visas that are available this financial year. Right. And that was one of my questions, because I know back in November, USCIS opened a third round in the lottery for H-1B specialty occupations, visa applications. Was this a response to a particular overflow in applications? Did it change the selection process in any way or prevailing wage requirements? Yeah, so historically, if we look at how USAS conducts the lottery prior to this electronic registration system that was implemented, USAS, even though there are only 85,000 new H-1B visas available under both the master and the regular cap, Um, they would select a larger number. So to give a bit of an example, they have the 85,000, but UCIS would take in anywhere from, you know, maybe 90 to 100,000 applications to guarantee that they're hitting that number. What happened when we moved to the registration, uh, electronic registration selection process was that they tended to select a reduced number of applications. So by the time the filing window had closed and they had received uh, the filings or hadn't received the filings for the numbers that they had originally selected, they found that they were under that 85,000 threshold. Mm -hmm. So it required them to do an additional round of selection to try and get up to that number. 
Again, it's likely that the numbers still failed to hit the 85,000. So it led to a third selection happening. So again, they can ensure that the full 85,000 new H-1B visas had been issued per the regulations. Um, so what we are thinking or what we're likely to predict will happen in this year is because that 85,000 is mandated by law, USAIS will continue to make selections to guarantee that that number is hit. In regards to the wage issues, and um, that really hasn't impacted how the lottery is completed in terms of making sure that USAIS selects enough petitions to hit the 85,000. Um, what it was looking at, or at least what it was proposed to do, was to change how an individual may be selected, or I guess increase the chances for individuals based on what their salary might have been. Luckily for EIG and for everyone in the immigration community, the Biden administration in December announced that they were not going to follow that plan and were not going to implement a lottery that is based on wages. Um, so thankfully, it's based on its current practice that has been in place for years upon years, um, which is just that random lottery selection with the only benefit or I guess the only ability to increase our chances is to have a U.S. master's degree. Got it. And do you have any insights as to why maybe this year was different or there was a lower number of applications versus previous years? So last year, there was a number of different legal cases that were lodged against USAIS. Um, there actually was a lot of complaints in the immigration uh, community, as well as by immigrants um, who were looking to obtain H-1B and that they didn't actually like the multiple rounds of selection. So even though we saw that it was kind of an increase in the number of people that were being selected, the rolling basis or having multiple selections happening throughout the year was not the preferred style for many. And so legal cases were lodged against UCIS to try and reduce or eliminate that process altogether. Um, again, there was also legal action taken against UCIS for the fact that the 85,000 wasn't being met. So I think in response to obviously all of that legal action that was happening, the discussions that were going on in the immigration community, USAIS is wanting to A, ensure that they hit the 85,000 as mandated, but B, make it sure that it's done in a method that they can handle and that it meets or makes the process as easy as possible for those who are going through it. First, as an immigration provider like EIG and for the individual who's trying to apply and obtain the H-1B status. Got it. And for those who are selected, let's say this first during this first phase, could you walk us through the next steps of uh, what applicants who are selected can do? Uh, what should they expect? How can they prepare? Yeah, definitely. So as I mentioned, there is a filing window for those individuals who have been successfully selected. So from April 1st, the filing window will open and those who have been selected will have 90 days in which to file their H-1B petition. Now it's important to make sure they're aware that that 90 days is a strict time frame. You say yes, will not accept late applications. So in terms of ensuring success or making sure that your petition is filed within this window, the best thing that we can recommend is to be as prepared as possible. 
And what we mean by that, or at least steps that individuals can take at this time, is to really have a look at their documentation and information and communicate it as quickly and as completely as possible to their employer or their immigration counsel. Um, so two things that we would probably highlight as being not necessarily pain points or areas where documentation is missing um, or we have to make a request for further documentation is for an individual's immigration history and their education documents. So what we commonly see is particularly with F1 students is that their immigration documents are incomplete. This could be that they are missing an I-797 approval notice for a particular period of time, which shows a gap of valid status, or for F1 students that they're missing I-20 records, um, particularly where they might be employed with a company, but they don't actually have an I-20 to evidence that approval. So USAS scrutiny remains high across H-1B petitions, but particularly when we get to cap season, we find that scrutiny for valid status and particularly for those in F1 status to be quite heightened. So checking to make sure that you do have that complete record of your uh, immigration history is definitely going to help ensure that you are providing the strongest petition through to you say yes. The other documentation that we would highlight it's best to try and start to be preparing now, even though April 1st is when it would kick off for filing, is your education documents. Many individuals who are applying for H-1B attained education outside of the US. So regardless of whether you might have a US master's or a US bachelor's degree, in some instances, there may be a requirement for us to have your foreign degree documents. Considering that they are outside of the US and we're still in a world where the COVID-19 pandemic makes it difficult to obtain records quickly, being able to access those documents or have them on hand can delay your ability to then provide them onto your immigration provider. So checking A, do I have them? Or B, if not making those requests early, means the timely providing to your immigration provider so that they can obviously prepare the most robust and complete record for your H-1B filing. I know you said there's multiple phases. Do we have any understanding of when the second phase of selections will be, or is that to be determined? So it technically is to be determined. Unfortunately, USAS has never provided a confirmation either last year or this year that they intend to do multiple rounds of selection. Mm -hmm. However, if we go off the basis or based on the trends from last year is that once the filing window closes, which is going to be June 30th, so 90 days from April 1st, USAS will be aware of whether or not they have enough applications to meet that 85,000. So what we can predict and what occurred last year was once we got past that June 30th threshold, USAS was then aware, hey, look, we need to do additional selections so that we can meet our mandated um, quota. And they made those additional selections mid-year. So we would expect the same to happen this year. Again, then a 90-day filing window opens. Um, so if we, again, they don't have those numbers and the 90-day 90 90 window has closed, that additional selections is likely to happen around November, which is exactly where it happened last year. Let's say the 85,000 quota is met. And unfortunately, you were not one of the selected. How do you advise applicants on next steps to take? Are, are there any alternative measures that can be taken or applied to within this year's period? 
Yeah, so alternatives are really going to be based on your individual circumstances. So again, timely providing immigration documents, particularly regarding your status to your employer and your immigration counsel is going to be the best way for them to be able to advise what alternatives are available. In saying that, when we look at those alternatives, it comes down to, do you have the ability to extend your current status? If that is an option, then clearly we want to make sure that those extensions are timely filed before your status is going to expire. If it is that you're in a situation where unfortunately you don't have the option to extend your current status, then when we look at other alternatives, it can vary depending on your personal circumstances. So for example, if you're currently married to a US spouse, there may be options within the US. And it can also depend on what your employer um, kind of entity structure looks like. So for example, what is their infrastructure within the US? What is their infrastructure outside of the US? Kind of what your current position is and are there available options in alternative locations that are maybe outside of the US that long-term may facilitate a way to come back into the US with their employment? Um, so the factors do range, um, but unfortunately they really do come down to kind of what are your individual set of circumstances. And the best way to get answers on those is to make sure that your employer or your immigration provider has the most up-to-date documents regarding your status so that they can advise accordingly. Got it. And if you decide not to go through the alternative route, when is the a good time to start preparing for next year's lottery in terms of whether it's getting your academic requirements together, uh, identification, and all the resources that's needed in order to apply for the 2023 season. Yeah, so the lottery happens around the same time every year. Um, so again, we would be looking at registration happening in March of 2023. Um, in saying that it's never too early to have those discussions with your employer to indicate, hey, that I still have interest to be counted. And also so that they can have a look to be like, well, do you have status to still be here in March of 2023? Um, because information may change. So if you're currently in the process of completing your master's degree, it's not necessarily something that needs to happen as of now, because we do have a full 12 months before that registration is going to happen. What we tend to do here at AIG and what we kind of see consistent across the immigration field is that process really starting to kick off around November and December so that that information can be timely gathered. And by that information, what we're referring to is your biographical information. Obviously, that's not going to change from year to year, but you might have renewed a passport. So making sure that you have that handy and ready. And then your education documents. So if you've retained a new degree this year, making sure that you do have that degree certificate and your transcripts ready to be provided. And also just making sure that you have that communication open to make sure that you are included um, and that your employer is willing to sponsor you once we do hit for next year. Got it. And with your expertise and experience over the years doing the H-1B lottery, what are some of the commonly asked questions or concerns that applicants have and that you respond to uh, to help them through this process? So I'd have to say the biggest one is generally related to travel. So the H-1B process, it, it does cover such a significant period of the year. So we have this 90 day filing window and then you don't have a status that isn't gonna take effect until October 1st, depending on the type of petition you filed. And so because there is substantial amount of time where your status is either pending or it's approved but hasn't taken effect, many individuals ask, you know, am I able to travel or what are the risk or factors to consider 
consider, is this going to impact, you know, my H-1B petition if I do travel? And so the first thing that I think we still recommend to clients or we're still cautioning clients in today's world is that the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic is still a really big thing. Um, it still makes non-essential travel a risk. Um, so if we've learned kind of anything from the last two years is that the situation remains quite fluid. We have emerging variations, we can have travel restrictions implemented in you know 24 hours. Um, so the risk for travel is still there, but we obviously understand people are wanting to travel. You have these travel that can't be avoided. So in those instances, the risk of travel can definitely be offset depending on whether or not you currently have a, v a valid status. And with that, a valid visa stamp that will facilitate your travel and re-entry to the US. Um, so in those instances, when an individual does not need to attend a US consulate abroad to complete visa stamping before returning to the US, there is slightly less risk to their travel and risk of impacting their H-1B petition. Um, for others, what we're seeing is that there's still an increased processing delays by UCS consulates, which means that if you do travel and you are required to clear visa stamping, there is this risk that you may be either stuck outside of the US or stuck out for a substantial period of time. And this ultimately can have an impact in terms of what type of H-1B petition we've filed. So what we mean by that is an H-1B petition can either be filed as a change of status or it can be filed under consular processing. And so your ability to kind of choose between the two is really dictated on, do I have an intention to travel and when you're intending to travel? So those discussions are at least indicating, hey, I have this desire to travel or I am traveling is something that you wanna communicate early on in the petition preparation process so that you can be advised accordingly. And then obviously your petition can be prepared in light of the intended travel. Perfect. Well, Lauren, uh, I know if I was going through this process, I would definitely want you to be my attorney. <laughs> they definitely put me at ease and have the information that's necessary for me to be successful. So hopefully this helps people who are going through this process right now. And if they have additional questions, you would re recommend them to speak to their own attorney? Yeah, definitely. I, you know, your immigration provider is going to have the best understanding of your current circumstances. So reach out to them and have those conversations. In saying that, EIG, we have a number of amazing resources, including this podcast, alerts, resources on our website. So you can definitely reach out there or to the EIG team. You know, we're always happy to help within the immigration community. Thank you so much, Lauren. Awesome. Thank you. Follow Immigration Nerds on Twitter at IMMNerds and Erickson Immigration Group on LinkedIn to join in the conversation. I'm Ian Gaines. See you next week.